think part of what I was trying to work through here was asking this basic question, which is, who gets to make mistakes? You're listening to WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Lori Messing-Gary. This is Real Fiction. Today I'm in conversation with Samir Pandya, author of Members Only. My guest today is Samir Pandya. His new novel, Members Only, was just published. He is also the author of the story collection, The Blind Writer, which was longlisted for the Penn Open Book Award. His fiction, commentary, and cultural criticism have appeared in a range of publications, including The Atlantic, Salon, Sports Illustrated, ESPN, and Narrative Magazine. He is a professor in the Department of Asian American Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Members Only covers sensitive topics of racism, assimilation, in absorbing and often humorous prose. And I'll confess I was excited to discover that the sport of tennis plays a role in this fast-paced novel. Joining me to discuss Members Only is Samir Pandya. Samir, welcome to the program. Thanks, Lori. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I know a little. Uh, you were born in India, moved to the U.S. as a child, and are now a professor of Asian American Studies at UC Santa Barbara. I'd love to know something about how the threads in your life inspired this novel, Members Only. Well, you know, I lived in India, in, in Bombay, in what's called Mumbai now, until I was eight years old. And then we, my family moved to California, to Northern California. And in essence, I've had these kind of blocks of my life, meaning this very kind of formative period growing up in India, uh, my kind of teen years acclimating to American life, and then a adult life that I've spent on a college campus of one kind or another. And so when I sat down to write this novel, I was trying to figure out how to incorporate all of this material in there. And I think uh, a part of the way the novel is structured is that we are in this very difficult week that this character Rajput has, and yet it I move through his past life um, significantly. And I think in some ways what I was trying to do there was incorporate these core periods from my own life and give them to Raj, but but then also think about the ways in which, of course, the past shapes are present, but as importantly here, the ways in which the experiences that Raj is having in his present moment allow him to revisit these flashbacks in a certain way and rethink them, to recast them, to think about his own childhood to think about being kind of this Indian kid growing up in America when there were not, in his particular case, a ton of other Indian kids around. So I tried to kind of balance that out. There is a lot of back and forth. There's a lot of backstory in 
India, while the story in its present form takes place in California. And I love that you've set some of the novel in a a, ten, a private tennis club, which from which we get the title Members Only. And I have to say that for tennis fans, this novel is really a delightful surprise. You probably had no idea when you were writing the novel that you would be publishing during a pandemic and a season in which the entire tennis schedule has been canceled. So it's it's really delightful to read um, not only about some of your, your tennis observations, but to get insight into this members-only club. And what I really loved was the connection between some of the cast systems that the character Rajbat knows intimately from Indian society. And then you go into kind of the social hierarchy of a private tennis club. So I guess a few questions here. You're obviously well-grounded in the game of tennis. I'd love to know what what attracted you to that sport? Have you always played it? And maybe tell us something about using that sport as a vehicle for the plot. One never imagines kind of publishing a, a book in, in a moment like this, right? And I will, I, I will admit that in addition to all the really difficult things going on, it is, you know, the summer for us tennis fans is a, a period of watching a lot of kind of remarkable tennis. I grew up in India playing a lot of cricket. I loved the sport. And we arrived in this country and we happened to move into a, a, a condominium complex that had a tennis court right next to it. And it remained kind of completely empty. And uh, once in a while, uh, and this is probably when I was about 10 years old, a man would come with a bag of balls and his dog, and he would hit 10 serves down the tee, 10 serves out wide. Eventually, I kind of made my way down there and started spending time picking up the balls. And he gave me my first tennis racket, and he Mm. gave me my first tennis lesson on the slight shifts required when hitting a backhand and a forehand. Wow. I I love the sport there. I mean, in a different, I mean, that in itself is a lesson, which is the lesson that Raj Butt learns about how you shift, you know, grips based on the social situation you find yourself. And so the, the game has kind of from a very early age since I've been in this country has been extremely important to me. I still play it. Uh, I play with my kids. I, I, I love it. Now, the thing about using it as a plot device, using it as a kind of a moment is that in some ways, like many sports, but tennis in particular is so layered with the ways in which class and race operate in this country, right? Particularly at a private tennis club, but also, of course, at a public tennis court as well, right? Which is that part of the way in which we talk about sports in America is to say that it is a space of pure meritocracy. Mm. And yet to get to that playing field is, of course, not leveled at all. Right, which is the, the 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 steps you need to take from your car to get to the tennis court in a private club are very different from the steps that you take when you park your car and go to a public court. Right, and I think that your um, overlap with the caste system is really interesting. Right, which is in some ways uh, Raj is aware of how caste hierarchies work, and I think he uses his anthropological acumen in a certain way to constantly think about the ways in which class and race operate, right? And so it just became 
Yes. I loved the sport, but then it just became this ideal place for these debates and these conversations to play themselves out. As a professor, he's both an observer and a participant. And you have this marvelous line in the book about hierarchies, old families, new families, ultra rich, working parents, alliances that everyone could see but could not fully map out. And that's one of the the things that plays out in the novel. We get to kind of get a look at the inner working of a tennis club from the perspective of someone who feels like an outsider and who is immersed in uh, cultural anthropology theory. So I think that's quite fascinating. And I, I wanted to ask you about a book that is referenced in the novel um, that gets to some of this. And I think the title is Purity and Danger by an anthropologist, Mary Douglas. Can you tell us something about that book and how it and, and how you may have re- used that as a resource to inform some of this um, backstory? Yeah, uh, you know, I'm trying to remember, I, I think I read the, the book as an undergraduate or maybe in graduate school, I can't remember which one, but you know, and I'm not gonna do justice to the extent of Mary Douglas's argument, but I can maybe talk about parts of that argument that really seemed to resonate with me, right? So Douglas in that, in that book um, talks about the ways in which dirt or the notion of things that are dirty operate in society. And I think particularly her two ethnographic cases are within Hinduism and Judaism. And I think there's a, a quote early in her book where she talks about dirt as being um, social matter out of place. This idea that we deem something dirty when it does not fit into the, our sense of what are the social rules and the social hierarchies that are at play. Now, you know, that becomes for Raj, even as he is kind of lecturing on the topic, in some ways, the way in which he frames his own sense of being both inside and outside at the same time, right? That he is in a certain way worried about this kind of old, relatively funky, dirty car that he drives around. Not because he has some fetish for cars, right? But there is a certain way in which the car announces that he might be out of place. And he recognizes the problems with that. And yet I think is, you know, very much kind of engaged, not wanting to feel that, right? And I think that that metaphor of dirt and literal dirt, but of course, the way it plays out here, deeply figuratively, which is uh, plays out not only for him, but this young student, Robert, who, um, shall we say, becomes a little obsessed with him, right? He says to him, as, as a white student, he says, out of all your lectures, this is the one that resonated the most with me. And then we see throughout the novel that Professor Rajbat is hes always kind of doing his best to suppress the inner monologue and not allow it to escape. He kind of edits everything he thinks before he says it. And there is this amazing moment in the novel when a slip of the tongue leads to this rapid downward spiral, both at the tennis club and in his professional life on campus. And I'd love to know, in your words, what 
What do you hope readers might consider about just feeling vulnerable and maybe the immigrant experience in general when it comes to speaking out? Yeah, no, that's a that's a really interesting question. You know, I think part of what I was trying to work through here was asking this basic question, which is who gets to make mistakes? Mm. And what I mean by that is who gets to make a mistake and be able to learn from it, be able to uh, kind of grow from it, right? Which is that, you know, whenever we have these kind of public apologies that are are given, people often will say, you know, well, I've really learned from this, right? And what is interesting about kind of Raj's presence, and this is, and I want to be very clear about this, right? Raj has his own deeply privileged life in the sense that he has kind of access to these the the tennis club that he plays at the the job that he has the life he enjoys with his family right and that is i think in some ways uh the character that i wanted to create right which is someone who from the outside seems like they at a certain level perfectly fit in and i think uh there is a lot of talk in the book about the notion of insecurity this kind of in tongue in cheek i you know, one of his antagonists, uh, Josh Morton, who's a faculty member, who's a professor of insecurity studies. And and it's very much the fact that he has security based on talking about insecurity, where minority voices can be deeply vulnerable. Hmm. That's, you've given me something to think about. You're quite right. The, The way that the character comes through, he does have a certain number of privileges. But at one point, he is asked to apologize, but he has never been apologized to for a number of things that um, we might, that happened at the tennis club. I know the term microaggression gets thrown around a lot these days, but what I felt that you do exceptionally well in this novel is articulate in both a um, very clear and humorous way how these little slights uh, can build up, and so I, I think that goes goes along with what you're dis, what what you're talking about when it comes to vulnerability and who gets a pass. There's there's so many things that an individual who feels like an outsider has to put up with just to really just to get through the day. The first thing about kind of the apology that that the tennis club is asking Raj to make, which is Raj, absolutely has to make that apology, right? Raj messed up in that moment, right? And I And he wants to make the apology. He absolutely does, right? So that is that is in for me as the writer and I think for him as the the character, that is never in question, right? I think that what does become in question is how quickly everyone is to demand that he be the one make like that he, it, it's his apology to make and that everyone is dictating the way in which he, it should be made, right? When I think Raj internally is saying, I messed up, let me figure out how to fix this. Now, to, to your kind of question about uh, microaggressions, you know, I, I think part of what I wanted to do kind of novelistically is to think about, you know, we we are talking, having this national conversation on race and racism, right? And that there is a way in which 
I, I wanted to kind of flesh out or shine a light on these implicit moments that seem seemingly like nothing, right? Little things asking him about India, asking him about Islam, um, all of these kind of various things. And what that does is it reduces Raj to his skin color and his national history, right? So that I think part of what kind of weighs on him is that his body, his his sense of being brown, his kind of uh, Indianness is the sole thing people see when they see him over and over and over again. And I think that I tried to kind of lay out in moments that are serious and then, of course, moments that are humorous of, and, and I think Raj needs his humor, right? It's because if Raj cannot deflect it with some kind of humor, he is just going to kind of fall down instantly, right? It, it becomes a kind of defense mechanism that he needs to use in order to kind of move from day to day to week to week. The way that you've written Members Only is that the the story largely takes place within one week. I, I wrote the first, what is now the first chapter of the book as a kind of a standalone piece, right? I'd written a book of stories before. Uh, it's what I felt most comfortable kind of working through. Hmm, it's interesting. And I, I wrote it and when I finished a draft of it, it felt like I wasn't finished with it, right? Meaning that the, the first chapter as it stands now kind of ends on a particular note. And what was exciting about ending on that note was that it was a invitation for more. And I didn't set out thinking I would do this in a week, but when I started drafting this book, what I did was... I, I recognize that the first day occurs on a Sunday. And then on a cork board, I put just as an experiment, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you know, on into Friday for the week. And I began writing out what I wanted to cover. And in a certain way, we have great novels that all take place in a day. And we have, of course, novels that all take place in an epic scale over decades. Now, thinking about it, the week has gotten kind of underplayed as a kind of as a unit of novelistic time. And what the week allowed me to do was to be both intimate in the writing of it and at the same time be expansive. But ultimately, I had this idea at some point of a very, very bad week. And in some ways, the, the structure just kind of laid itself out in that context. Well, I mentioned um, that you teach Asian American studies at UC Santa Barbara. I'd like to know what what kind of classes do you teach, and are there novels built into your your classes? And what do you like? What novels do you like to teach, and what do you like to recommend? Perhaps some that aren't on our radar screen. I'm trained as a uh, kind of as a literary scholar, and so I. Um, I teach this class that I've taught the most when I've been at UC Santa Barbara, an introduction to Asian American literature class. Uh, and then I teach creative writing and a course on aesthetics. In, term, I mean, in that introduction to Asian American literature class, uh, there are a set of authors, right? The canon of the tradition that I teach. And I'll just mention kind of two or three of them, uh, both kind of novelists and then also short story writers as well. Okay. I, I begin 
with, you know, Americans in the Heart, which is the great Carlos Bulasan memoir. Um, and then the, the book I turn to next, which is a, a novel that I absolutely kind of adore teaching, is Nono Boy by John Okada, which is about a, a character that is leaving jail at the end of the Second World War, who went to jail because as a Japanese American, he did not fight for the American armed forces. And if you refused to fight, then you went to jail instead of being in the internment camps. And so that is a kind of a remarkable book that I feel like I can teach over and over again because Okada's voice in that is so remarkable. Uh, the two more contemporary writers that I love teaching in that class is, you know, the the graphic novelist Adrian Tomini, who does so much work with his kind of uh, comics and the comic novels that he has written. And the other, the last person I'll mention is uh, Ewan Lee, who is, uh, I think, is, of course, becoming, is, is quite well known, but is a uh, is a novelist that I think just, you know, you know, there's always novelists that you will read anything that they produce, right? And for me, Ewan Lee has become that contemporary novelist that, uh, you know, that I will read. She published this book, Where Reasons End, which is a, a gut punch of a book about uh, kind of a conversation between a mother and a son. Those are superb recommendations, really intriguing. I wonder if you care to share, Samir, what, what you're working on next. I, I am in a kind of an interesting position in the sense that I am a I'm trained, I have a PhD in literary studies. And so I kind of balance out myself as a fiction writer and as a literary and cultural studies scholar. And so I have some kind of scholarly work that I've kind of, you know, just placed to the side as I was finishing this book uh, about kind of South Asians in America that I want to turn to. Uh, there's a, a novel about India uh, in the early part of the 20th century that I've been kind of tooling around with a little bit. So I think that that is another thing I want to get to. And then, I mean, I guess the one the one thing I'll mention is I'm not quite sure I'm done with Raj Bhatt yet, right? Like that voice is still in my head quite strongly. Maybe I, I will return to him at some point as well. In addition to the scholarly works that you work on and these evolving novels, you've also written some articles um, about sports, about tennis. And so I don't want to let you slip away just yet before I ask you about um, tennis. And do you have, do you have uh, your own impression about who the greatest player, the greatest tennis player, female or male? You know, I, I think it's Serena. And let me I explain a little bit. I mean, of course, it doesn't need to be explained, right? But Serena's, Serena Williams is a remarkable, remarkable tennis player. And I think the funny thing about the GOAT conversation is in some ways you and I and my friends and I can have that conversation forever, right? Because there is really no clear metric that we can all agree on, right? You can say grand slams, you can say this. I love Serena and I love, I, I'm a fan of Roger Federer, right? And what I find interesting in this conversation about GOATness is that as tennis fans, what I have been deeply appreciative of in the past decade or longer that the two of them have been such a central presence in our tennis viewing life is that they are in some ways a perfect kind of microcosm of 
this internal conflict that tennis is having, right? Which is that Serena Williams is a, you know, these two players who were born a month apart, uh, one in, in, in Michigan, the other one, of course, in Switzerland. And that where Serena is this player who is, is kind of pushing the boundaries of the sport, right? Claudia Rankin writes so beautifully on kind of what it feels like to be kind of her body in a predominantly white space. And Federer, who of course, you know, literally glides in the air, literally when you watch him play tennis, but figuratively as well, right? That he is the image of tennis's inside man, the image that tennis has had of itself. And in thinking about the two of them together and watching them together is that they are both kind of individually at the top of these kind of grand slam numbers. But what they're offering to you and me as, as viewers is it's allowing us to see tennis play itself out, to be this sport, not just about how good they both are, right? It's because watching both of them, they're remarkable tennis players, but they're telling us a story about race and class and privilege and all of these things that I started writing this book about. And the two of them I return to over and over again is because they provide that kind of conversation. They're a cultural presence, both on the in the sport and in the wider world. I mean, I think they've become so iconic that uh, non-tennis fans relate to them in some way. And I think that's such, such a beautiful way to describe their their trajectory. My guest today is Samir Pandya. His new novel is Members Only. It was just published. And Samir, where can readers find out more about you and any virtual events you might be doing? All of kind of my virtual events are, uh, and all the information is on my website, uh, samirpandya.net. I have, you know, quite a few other things that are kind of listed there. And the beauty of this particular moment is you can show up wherever you live, you know, whatever time it is uh, to engage in the conversation. And I'm very excited about these conversations because that's actually become an interesting, when I was growing up, readings, usually the reader just read. And I love this new trend where they're in conversation. It's because it's just more interesting to hear about people and their ideas on writing when it's a little bit more off the cuff. That That's wonderful. Well, Samir, thank you for coming to the program today. Lori, I really appreciate it. I appreciate the engagement with the book. And I'm so, um, I, in particular, the tennis conversation that we just had was really uh, made me miss being able to watch it on TV. Oh, I think we all miss that. So this book has something for everyone. And I encourage our listeners to check out the website uh, and get get the book. It's called, it's titled Members Only. And um, for listeners, please check out realfictionradio.com. We'll have a list of Samir's book recommendations and his upcoming events. You've been listening to WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. All episodes are archived on realfictionradio.com and your favorite podcast platforms. Thanks for listening.